All right, welcome back to the Unregulated Podcast. This is episode number 27. We've been at it for half a year. Thursday morning, March 11th, here in the AA studios. Want to give a shout out and a happy birthday to my beloved wife. Is it her birthday today? It is her birthday today. I didn't realize I celebrated those things in Maryland. We are happy birthday. Going out to dinner tonight. Where? Oh, it's a surprise. I can't share it. Oh, okay. Because she's going to, I know she's going to be listening as soon as this thing goes live. Well, so. it's okay. I'm going to just, uh, I, I'm not saying happy birthday to anybody, but I found out that one of our uh, deeply, deeply disturbed listeners is also a friend of mine, a guy named Joe Balash, who used oh. to be an important man. Yes, we know Joe. Um, Joe's living, um, living up there in Alaska, North Pole, Alaska. So our listeners span the continent. Uh, I noticed we have someone from Norway. Who no listens way. as well? Yes, I saw it on the SoundCloud this, action. This this has so to. So we stop. have a Canadian. We got some Norway action. We got a guy from Alaska. We got Americans too. It's nice. great. Okay, um, today we are going to be joined by a distinguished guest, and uh, uh, also a chief economist at the research arm of the American Energy Alliance, Dr. David Kreutzer. Dr. Kreutzer. Are you with us, sir? Yes, sir. Ready to go, I think. Wonderful. Uh, hey, I want you to introduce yourself because uh, you're probably much better at it than I am, and I want you to not uh, – don't don't spare any details, sir. <laughs> okay. My name's David Kreutzer. I grew up in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Went to a bunch of schools ending at Virginia Tech where I did my most of my graduate work. Finished uh, my Ph.D. at George Mason. Taught at James Madison for a quarter of a century. Uh, came up to D.C. working in uh, think tanks for a while. Uh, retired, was very happy. Got tricked into coming out of retirement by a guy named Tom Pyle, working at the Institute for Energy Research, which is a, a group that I worked with very closely when I was at the Heritage Foundation. I'm glad to be there. Well, I'm uh, glad you agreed because we're better for it. And thank you very much for that. Also, you did a brief stint with the Trump transition along with myself and some other some other of our cohorts. Yeah, did, did a couple of months uh, purgatory at the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, interesting experience. And, uh, <laughs> we can leave it at that because I know some <laughs> of the background information. <laughs> so I want to get into um, one issue, one specific issue, and then we can kind of wander around and, and talk about whatever else we want to. But first, I want to read from uh, an article in Fox Business, uh, a coalition of 12 states is suing President Biden's administration over a climate executive order that they claim has the potential to have a serious economic impact across the country through the expansion of federal regulatory power. The suit being led by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt was filed this past Monday uh, AK, Arizona, Indiana, Kansas, Montana, Nebraska, South Carolina, Tennessee, Utah joined the action. It alleges that Biden's executive order titled Protecting Public Health and the Environment and Restoring Science to Tackle the Climate Crisis, it's a mouthful, does not have the authority to issue binding numbers for the social cost of greenhouse gases to be used in federal regulations. Uh, the breakdown of the social cost shows $269 billion for CO2, $990 billion for methane, and $8.24 trillion for nitrous oxide, totaling approximately $9.5 trillion, according to the lawsuit. 
which cited interim values determined by an interagency working group that was created by Biden's order. So why don't you tell our 100 listeners exactly what this social cost of carbon is, and if you could just kind of get us to where we are today with the social cost of carbon fiasco. Okay. The, the social cost of carbon is uh, sort of an economist fetish. It's, it, it looks at what they would call an external cost, and that's actually what should be called the external cost of carbon dioxide. Um, what, what they're hoping is they can perfect markets by tweaking this and tweaking that and coming up with this tax and that subsidy. Uh, and this, the social cost of carbon uh, is supposed to measure the amount of damage that a ton of CO2 emitted in any given year, say in 2021, how much damage it would cause in 2021, in 2022, in 2023, on and on and on and on to the year 2300. So it's going to warm supposedly the, the world a little bit this year, a little bit next year, and so on for 300 years. And you take that, that additional warming per ton of CO2 emitted this year and try to look at how much damage the ton emitted this year causes it for the next 300 years. It's, you have to know things that you, we can't know, that we don't know. You know. That is, how much warming do you get for per ton of CO2? The, the numbers vary considerably, and the ones that they're using in that interagency working group look to be a, a good bit too high anyway. You have to know how, what the warming does in terms of damage to the economy. Um, and you know that's also unknowable. They usually leave out adaptation and all sorts of things. So you, you start out with unknowable numbers for the next 300 years. And the, the thing that I've been focusing on is how you translate a damage in the year 2300 to today. And that's something called discounting. Um, and it, it gets a little bit wonky, but you, you think of it as the opposite of compounding. You put, uh, let, let's say you, you, you put money in a bank and just for simplicity, so you get 10% rate of return. Put $100 in this year, next year you have 110. You don't take anything out, the year after that, you have 121. If you don't take anything out, the year after that, you have $133.10 and so on. And it grows and grows and grows. The discounting is just doing the opposite direction, saying how much money would you have to put in the bank at a particular interest rate to get the amount of money we're talking about in the future? So if we're talking about you know, $1,000 worth of climate damage, you know, pretending they can actually calculate that, and uh, I'm going to use a number 158 years because of a paper I'm writing right now. Um, so if you have $1,000 worth of damage in 158 years, what should we be willing to pay to mitigate that? Today. Today. Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Now, there, there's several problems. One is we have a bunch of alternative investments, which the climate people are ignoring. And that's how they say the interest rate is something we can just choose. But it's an opportunity cost exercise. We need to look at it. The other thing is people, we, we, in addition to not knowing what's actually going to happen in 158 years, um, the people 158 years from now are going to be so much better able to figure out what really matters to them and to handle it. If we go back 158 years, people had 5% of our income, all right? They had technology that was so much inferior to ours. We, we would not have wanted the, 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 the people then to cut back on their candle use or their coal use 
to save us whatever climate damage we think it might have caused now. I mean, that's just silly. Dave, let me just stop you for a second because there's, some, there's something that's bothering me about this. Are you trying to tell me that you can't predict the future? But no, <laughs> I can't. No, they, I mean, the, Yogi Berra can. Because I, I was, I was going to say, I, I don't think that's right. I'm pretty sure if you put enough economists in a room, they could predict the future. Don't isn't that isn't that what yeah. they teach in econ school? Now you you have it close. What we're really good at is predicting the past, and <laughs> but but not but not spot on always, right? Uh, not, oh, it's on, well, the, the climate models can't even predict the past. Uh, that's that's the embarrassing thing. Go ahead, use the word backcasting. I've always wanted to use the word backcasting in public. Sounds like fishing, and I don't know that word. But in any event, okay, I call it predicting the past, but the which sounds better to me. And even so, um, you know, the, the the notion that that the our grandchildren will be forever infantile and never have capabilities greater than ours is silly. We know they will, unless we kill the economy today with stupid policies like they're ginning up in the Biden administration. What about the argument that we have to do these things today because if we don't do them today, the compounding impacts will make it irrep uh, it will make us incapable of addressing this issue. We reach that point of no return. This is what the John Kerry's of the world and everybody else's who is promoting <laughs> this stuff likes to throw back at, at folks like you and me. Um, if ever there was a, a, a flawed uh, messenger for, for climate damage, it's John Kerry. Um, back in, I think it was 2014, he gave a, this condescending speech in Jakarta Everybody covered his one line, which was climate change is a weapon of mass destruction. But in that speech, he gave his explanation of the climate science. He said, it's so simple that little children can understand it. And then when he explained it, it had nothing to do with the actual climate science. He said, uh, let me just stop you. Let me just yeah. stop you. I want to warn our listeners that um, you may find this next <laughs> section, um, climate misinformation. It is, in fact, just plain old American climate information. But go ahead, Dave. Okay, but very briefly, John Kerry said that the greenhouse gases are a thin layer, half inch, three quarters of an inch, something like that, way at the top of the atmosphere. <laughs> I mean, it's just total nonsense. Nobody says that. I, I spent a couple of days trying to figure out what he was doing. And the best I could come up with was he had a... a uh, is one concept of, of the ozone layer. That is, if you compressed all the ozone in the atmosphere to, to atmospheric pressure at the sea level and got rid of everything but the ozone, it would be something less than an inch thick. And most of the ozone that we like is way up at you know, the height, but it's, it's not you know, the, the CO2. It was, but he, the way he presented it was so arrogant, which is how he does it all the time. You know, for people like me, private jets are the only way to travel. I was you just going to bring that up. But yeah. You don't understand. Know. It. You know what? Wait a minute. But I, Hold but on for I a second. Pay, I, mitig I mitigate. I pay into a fund. You could also, I mean, I know he talked about his private jet because he got asked about it, but in all fairness, he could also take in one of his yachts. I mean, you know, he, he, he's, 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 yeah. a, he's a man of the people, Dave. And, well, you know, and we give him credit. He, he took his private jet. Right, you exactly. Know, not, he, he, not somebody else's. Exactly. Let me ask. You, let me ask you a different question because you yeah. seem to be veering into very dangerous territory. I spent my life there. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me that carbon dioxide, as a practical matter, mixes evenly across the atmosphere? Is that where you're trying to go? That's what the science says. 
Well, yep. we always follow the science here, we wherever it leads us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just wanted to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. I mean, like the whole planet, right? So if like we did a national ambient air quality standard for carbon dioxide here in the states, like it po couldn't possibly be met, right? Because it would. That no. It, it, either we would meet it without doing anything, or we would never meet it, regardless of what we did, depending on where they set the standard. And, and um, they want to set it, and of course, the regulation allows you to reset it year after a number of years right five years or so every three years three years well five it's you're supposed to reset three it years five, practically but it, yeah but i was gonna say as a practical matter you gotta start the process every three years right and um of course that is what they're likely to do in order to reach their new commitment uh in their renewed zeal to re-enter us into the paris agreement correct is that is that where we're headed with that's the, where we're headed regulatory that's where we're headed i was on a i was on a phone call with the with refiners no with the uh a bunch of bank guys yesterday and i was trying to explain this to them and they said well what's your bottom line here i'm like my bottom line is clean air act isn't fit to do that what they want to do right we need to right. we need to reopen it and do a bunch of different stuff but Nobody's going to do that. So let, let's get back to social cost of carbon for a social second. Social cost of carbon. Close, yeah. Close, okay. So what? Why? Why the social? Why? Why did they re re-engage this? Other than the fact that it's the third Obama term, so you know, yeah. obviously they're going to do whatever they did in the second Obama term. But why did they re-engage this working group? Why did they set the number where they set it? And what is their plan going forward from your perspective? You know, I think it helps here to look at a little history. And this, in my mind, the social cost of carbon is, is a great example to explain all the junk in D.C. The first social cost of carbon, which they, they, they wanted to put through so they could come up with all these climate regulations uh, without having to vote on anything, uh, came out in a first issued in a regulation on beverage vending machine compressors. They did it intentionally on a regulation they thought nobody was going to follow so that they could get it in the regulatory apparatus and say, well, we've already vetted this. Um, the number they came up with was, I think, less than $20. Um, and it turns out it wasn't enough to, to get anything done that they One, wanted less to Less than done. $20 a ton. Excuse me, $20 per ton of carbon dioxide. Okay. okay. Which would still be you know, bad news for coal. Um, but they, they, they couldn't justify much. And in fact, uh, they, they, a study came out a year later that claimed to say sea level rise was going to be much worse than we thought. So they made all the guys come back, redo their integrated assessment models, which, is the, which are the mathematical economic models used to, to determine the social costs of carbon. And they juiced the number a bit to like 40 or something like that. Um, and the, in that one, they put out, okay, again, they're hoping people weren't going to be paying attention. And the second time, we were paying a little more attention. But it came out in a regulation to look at the energy efficiency of microwave ovens when they're turned off. All right? I say people have to understand this. It, this is a true thing. It's not a joke. It was, it was a microwave oven's digital display, the energy use in the digital display was what allowed them to enter in the social cost of carbon for the second time. And this was a reg an actual regulation that they promulgated in the Federal Register for this particular thing that you just described. Yes, it was like 50 pages in the Federal Register um, with the microfiche size print. But here's the killer, all right? The social cost of carbon didn't really justify it. 
it, the, the, if you looked at even their number of social cost of carbon, they claimed in essence that the market was out of whack by 50 cents per microwave oven per year. They claimed that this regulation would save people um, $11 over a 10-year period <laughs> in electricity, net, net of the cost. So you had to pay for more for this new digital display, but it was going to save two watts of electricity. Okay. The uh, industry said, well, the, the, the display type you want us to go to doesn't perform well in high heat and humidity situations where these microwaves are going to be over top of the oven. They were looking particularly at the above the oven microwave ovens, above the stove, excuse me. So they tested a bunch of them in environment chambers with high temperature and high humidity. There was one paragraph, maybe one sentence in this 50 pages of uh, Federal Register where they noted that half of the microwave ovens with the technology they wanted the, the new ones to use failed. <laughs> so in order to save you $11, half of your microwave ovens are gonna break. It was, I mean, so, and that's how they do it. And it's like, you know, you look around, you want to, it's one of those situations where you want everybody to open the window and scream something, you know, um, but so that, that's how it gets started. And, you know, if they're going to be regulating how much electricity your digital display on your microwave oven uses, you can only imagine where else they're going to go with this. And so that's why they've reopened it. They want a bigger number. Some people are talking about $1,000. Yeah. Let me jump in here for one second, right? The, the tricky thing about that is that um, they're not going to be able to do that until they've closed the door one way or the other on a carbon tax, right? Because if, if, they, if they cough up something before a carbon tax vote, which we're going to get in September, October, November, um, that's going to be a benchmark, right? They can't come out with a with a hundred dollar number because we're not going to have a hundred dollar tax. Um, so they're they're um, they're getting a little they're getting a little caught, you know. Their their shoes are getting caught up together. What what is the current um, the current reissued social cost of carbon number? Right I now? think it was fifty one dollars. Fifty one bucks. Yeah. So that's that's the. That's the opening bid for this yeah, yeah, yeah. carbon tax. Thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, they can't go below that. Or well, it, well, okay. So that's a real problem, right? Because because um, Senator Durbin introduced a bit of a carbon fee, <laughs> carbon fee yesterday, where uh, he started it at twenty five bucks, and it climbs by ten percent plus inflation every year, right? So, you know, ten bucks a year is a lot. Um, and it's a dividend job, right? It's a theoretically you get the money back, except they detour about forty percent of it for environmental justice. Shocker! Yeah. Shocker! I know I'm shocked yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, long story short is they already have the disconnect, right? I'm sure they don't want it to grow any bigger. Somebody in the administration, Gina McCarthy, is thinking about this. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about this. My my guess is you know you could come up with a carbon tax that you would say is will be guided by you know the uh, social cost of carbon. And um, you know the, the you know, it'll be fifty one dollars until right after they vote on it, and then they can you know, you know mess around with it and get it up there. So some of the people are saying, well, we can't even really do social cost of carbon. You know, I agree with them. They, the people on the left are saying it's really too awkward. So let's just say we want to get rid of all CO you know, to go net zero by whatever twenty fifty. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's assuming you do know the social cost of carbon. That's the thing you do know what the benefit of all this is. So it's a, it's 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 crazy. Well, I mean, the Europeans have that right. They have a theory that the target drives the cost. They don't really care about the cost because they think the benefit is 
ginormous no matter what it is. And, you know, you and I both know that cost benefits, cost benefit assessments are rackets, right? I mean, right. It, it, it depends on assumptions and who's doing it, right? Yeah, uh, yes. But, the, you know, but the, the question is, if we don't, you know, if, if we don't really need to know, have any concept whatsoever of the costs and benefits, why 2050? Why not next May? You know, if, if this is just a virtue, getting rid of it has, you know, is, is going to create more green jobs, is going to create more benefits than, you know, the, uh, you know, in, in total than its costs, you know, why, why, why not pick an arbitrarily closer All number? All right, let me just stop you right there. Um, you've said enough to warrant your inclusion in any kind of list going to the camps. So congratulations. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Um, you're, not, you're not allowed to ask foundational questions of the leaders. And for that, I thought they might give me an award for, for moving it up to this year. They right? are going to give you an award. They're, they're going <laughs> to send you on an all expenses paid trip, yeah. just not one you're going to want to go on. So the question becomes, and I bring this up occasionally, uh, if these things are so eminent and the threat is existential. Existential. It's an existential threat, not just why us, Tom. We, why are we even messing around with? with these social you know, cost of carbon these things i mean uh, we should be we it's the there only, should be a climate emergency that biden should declare a climate it, if they believe all of this why are, aren't we acting it's the why only, aren't they acting with the sense of urgency that they claim that this issue needs it's an existential threat that we could take 29 years to solve <laughs> yeah no i i think no um they're doing that I think they're getting they're, they want to get rid of the people that are calculating the social costs are now being driven off the, you know, off the reservation. Um, I think if, if uh, William Nordhaus hadn't won a Nobel Prize, it's really hard in that circle to claim that Nobel Prize doesn't get you some authority. Um, you know, and if you look, <laughs> it's really funny. I have the diagram around here anyway, but which, of course, doesn't work too well on radio. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. This is the podcast medium, uh, sir. Podcast medium. Not radio. Okay. Um, <laughs> We're not part of the system. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I'm, I'm not allowed to call my sound system a hi-fi either. We're right? off book here, sir. Um, but he, in, in his, his handbook for his, uh, the model that he uses, uh, the, the DICE model, um, he shows some charts, he, and he's never published it again for, for reasons that are perfectly understandable, where he... Put, uh, put down GDP, or it was may have been GDP per capita, I guess. Um, I guess it's GDP between now and the year 2100. Under do nothing, okay, business as usual, his optimal set of carbon taxes, and then one where it was it was a uh, carbon tax was too high. All of the lines were over top of each other. You couldn't get it. You couldn't get a sharpened pencil between them by 2100. There was a there was a few percent difference between the his optimal path and the business as usual path. Okay, so that that's the arrogance of the economists thinking that they can fine tune the world economy to that extent. That if you if you allow them to tax trillions here and substitute and shift trillions there, that we can pick up a few billion. Okay. It's 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 an insane operation. Well, we, we're, but now we're going to build back better, David, because COVID is is they're they're trying to not to use the word opportunity, uh, <laughs> and they stop themselves whenever they can. 
before they get they get the word out. Um, but they're literally, uh, you know, using this situation to try to quote restart the global economy in a way that is equitable and sustainable and all this other business. Right. So, yeah. well, this, this is just a fun one. And if, if, if we get over COVID, they'll have to go back to climate change, which, you know, is, is it will be an absolutely impossible problem to solve. We will never win the climate battle. And the reason we can never, ever, ever win it is because the metrics for whether we're losing are if the weather doesn't change. Well, <laughs> that, you know, we, if we have the same number of hurricanes we've always had, it's a problem that shows that we're in a climate crisis. If we have the same number of tornadoes we've always had, it shows we're in a climate crisis. And you always have you know, the, the 350.org types and Greta saying that we're not doing enough. Yeah, It'll I mean, be forever like that. I mean, I'm going to have to throw my, I'm going to have to throw in with the, um, with the Indians and the Chinese here, right? Yeah. Um, this is this is a, this is just another helping of neo-colonialism, right? It's exactly we we've had this we've had this debate before in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, right? It was population, and then yeah. now it's climate change. Absolutely. Always Absolutely. drawn, always, always, always about two things: always about the elites in the West. Um, forcing their own populations to do things and always about the elites in the West asserting that the right. um, developing world needs to do what they want them to do, not what the developing world wants to do. It's you know. the perpetual poverty plan. It, well, you know, I mean, if you're an elite, what do you care, right? You got money. Now here, well, they can buy, they can assuage their guilt this way. One of my, one of my favorite uh, features of the fight against the climate um, and, you know, in environmental justice is, is this. The World Bank, and I think most of the other, uh, you know, development banks, the, the intergovernmental development banks, will no longer fund uh, uh, coal-fired power plants. As a matter of fact, I think they've given up altogether on, on uh, fossil fuel no, I think that's power right. plants. Yeah. Um, so that's just tremendously damaging. I mean, that would be a great way if you want, you know, and I'm not sure I'm a big fan of the World Bank, but you know, one of the things you can do is bring them clean water and electricity. What did they do instead? Well, we had the, the economist from the World Bank came when I was at Heritage and he was speaking. While he's talking about things, I actually Googled and went to their page on, uh, on energy, the World Bank energy page. The big picture on the front page of the World Bank's solution for the third world energy problems was the clean cook stove initiative. <laughs> I am not joking you. That was the top. That was the top item. And for those of you who don't know, a clean cook stove allows people to burn as much as fifty percent less dung in their huts. Okay, that and that that's a, a you know was supposed to be a, a great solution to their energy problem. We're not going to allow them to have electric stoves. We're not going to allow them to have lights that can turn on at night. All these things because that would require in those parts of the world where they don't have gas distribution, um, you know, coal-fired power plants. So you can't have the thing that would really help, but so we don't feel so bad. You don't have to collect as many sticks, as much dung, or as much charcoal. Or traipse across the, across the you know, terrain for a, yes. you know, a half a day to deliver a little bit of fresh water yeah. to your family. To me, and and there, was a, there was this great paper. The economists went and looked at the, now I like economists. Um, <laughs> at, at the at the impact, they went and measured. There, there was a great because there's this, there were a couple of villages in India where more people wanted clean cook stoves than there were available, so they had a lottery, 
And so you get this, this great, you know, what they call natural experiment, the people that have, that got them, that wanted them, the people that didn't get them, that wanted them. And they looked at all the metrics in terms of health effect and so on, no difference whatsoever. Um, and in fact, the people that got the clean cook stove, they were actually higher maintenance than the traditional one. Um, within a few years, they, they, they gave up on them, right? It's like my, uh, it's like my treadmill at home. It's, it's a great coat hanger. <laughs> it, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to make a prediction right here. Yeah. We are going to hear a lot more about clean cook stoves and I'll tell you why. Cause it's a big thing for um, secretary Clinton and her alums, her alums floating around the administration. They're going to cycle back on it. I'll bet you any amount of money you want. You, you, you know, that I, when I looked, it seemed like the Clinton Foundation had a network of people in all these countries pushing the clean cook stoves. You yeah. Know, so the people, you know, the, the, you know, the, we see them here in D.C. Um, there's this, this, this group that the, the globalists, and they're all getting, you know, probably, you know, top 1% income in the country where they're living to help distribute clean cook stoves. Well, it, it's the cognate um it's the cognate of um, the integrateds um, coming out in favor of uh, carbon taxes, right? They want to be able to say, we're doing something about energy poverty. We're doing something. We're giving everybody some some um, cook stoves, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in, instead of, you know, when, so when they get asked about it, like, I gave a bunch of cook stoves. It's a, it's a, it's a great... You can do a, you can you know you can make a video of it you know with, with high yeah. production value yeah man you get somebody to say you know my house is so much cleaner now I used to cough a lot now I don't the the numbers show that that wasn't the case but in any event why do you uh, why do you, why do you hate cook stoves Dan <laughs> <laughs> what don't you like about poor people I you um, know yeah. I I want everybody to be um, healthy and wealthy and have all the electricity and other energy forms they need. Don't minimize cook stoves. You, you know, and what would have been one of my proudest moments if the World Bank person in charge of this debate I participated in hadn't hidden the tapes for it and didn't allow it to become public. They made a big deal. I, 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 and actually, Bob Mendelson from Yale and I debated two people. Um, one was the vice president in charge of renewable energy or something at the World Bank. Very nice person, by the way. Um, and they had 800 people that they brought from all their World Bank affiliates uh, around the world to this big auditorium. And they had an equal number watching on video. Um, and it was the, the debate was renewable energy is affordable, um, cheap and necessary or an urgent or whatever. And one of the lines, I mean, I'm looking out at these people from all these poor countries. And I'm thinking, I said, you know, the World Bank seems to want to make the world a perfect place for poor people. They don't want to make poor people rich people. <laughs> and I don't know, whatever, the whole debate went, we killed them. They actually, they, they lost the debate by a huge, you know, they did the pro-vote, pre-vote and the post-vote. And we flipped more than 50% of the people. Nice. <laughs> and they, and they, and of course, you know, the, the, the letter I got, we need this because better information should be, you know, disseminated, blah, 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 blah. They, they never made that, the, the, the video public. I don't know where it is, but I don't, I don't, I don't think poor people really want to stay poor. That's, that's a wild, I know to say that it's just a guess. But. Well, I mean, it's awfully arrogant of you to assume uh, what these people want. <laughs> I give Western value. After all, we know, <laughs> we know what they want. Right. 
So, mm-hmm. hey, um, I appreciate that. And and so what you mentioned environmental justice very briefly. I know that you've been um, writing a little bit about that as well. And, you know, it means it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What, what would you say that this is about really? Um, and, and, and more to the point, um, where are we going with this debate? Okay. Um, you know, the, the poor people here, the poor people in the world and so on, that, that's always, you know, they, they, you want to bring that up because it's hard to argue against helping the poor. Um, what we saw, I mean, unfortunately for them, this is simply an exact repeat of what they did 10 years ago when they talked about their green jobs. Um, so the Obama-Biden administration came in, they promised to create 5 million new green jobs. They spent a big chunk of their trillion dollar stimulus package to go to this green job creation. They had the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, okay, come up with the numbers. They were so embarrassing that after the second iteration of the report, they literally defunded the report so that no more reports could be written. They, they, they couldn't come up with anything close to the, to the number of green jobs they promised. They, um, they, they also did a study on the impact of the green jobs training programs. And they found things like 20% of the green job training programs gave certificates with a day or less of training. Almost 50% had less than a week's worth. They didn't come anywhere close to their placement rates. The people that got placed were people that already had jobs before. Total green jobs failure, okay? So they go in saying, we're gonna help these people because it was right during the, the, the recession that we had, that sharp, deep recession. They're gonna create jobs. You know, Van Jones, we're gonna create jobs. We're gonna find people who need jobs and put them in places that need to have people working. Like, you know, that's what businesses are always doing. But in any event, they failed so miserably that Daryl Issa was the chairman of an oversight committee, had the acting director of the Bureau of Labor Statistics literally staring at his desk. If the desk weren't there, a guy had been staring at his shoes, answering the questions, and got him to admit that the Bureau of Labor Statistics so broadened the definition of green job to try to get somewhere close to the number when they never got halfway there, that their definition of green jobs would have included a lobbyist for an oil company. <laughs> It was, it was like, it's one of the greatest videos of a hearing. I think we've got seen. that somewhere. We'll have to put it in the show notes. Uh, they also <laughs> said that everyone who works for waste management right. yeah, well, no, that was the biggest is a green job. Yeah, there, there were more green jobs in the, let me see if I remember this. I wrote a paper on it. Um, in the portable toilet and septic tank servicing industry than, than solar utilities. All right. The biggest green job was, oh gosh, it was like janitors, housekeepers, but not, you know, whatever. One of the, you know, the BLS kind of statistics. You know, nothing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these jobs. That we, you know, we need to have all these jobs. But you know, they're talking about lab coat jobs of the future and people's, you know, calculators and, you know, and, and those, they just didn't happen. So that's what they're doing here. You know, they're talking about, you know, we're going to help. You take take this. Um, uh, $1.9 trillion, you know, COVID thing. I mean, you ta- anytime you take a couple of trillion dollars, you can, do- it, what's fun is to divide it by the number of poor households, the number of households below the poverty level. You just write them a and, check. And, and well, you get numbers like a half a million dollars. Right. You know, they're not getting it. <laughs> 
And so what happens with the pastime when we're talking about green jobs? The green jobs were all at finance places in, in New York who were, who were getting the, you know, jumping on to get the tax credits for the solar power, creating things like, or Solyndra, you know, the poster child is great. That should have, it was a poster child. Uh, well, totally luckily we have Governor Granholm of Michigan, who's now the Secretary of Energy, because she had a, an amazing track record when she was governor of doling out cash for, uh, you know, green job creators, including convicted felons. Um, <laughs> So, um, anyways, listen, um, we really appreciate you joining us okay. um, and hope that you will continue uh, to be available for us uh, as as we watch the uh, Biden administration's Build Back Better plan unfold over the next couple of years. What okay. are you working on right now for IER, Dr. Kreitzer? Yeah, no. So, I, I, I'm, again, I, I hinted at it earlier. I, um, by virtue of wanting to stay married, I watched Little Women, and I'm looking at the at the levels of poverty of the Hummel family, and which was more typical than that of the rich people in that movie, and that was about 160 years ago. And going 160 years forward takes us about halfway as far out as they're going with their social cost of carbon calculations. And so I'm looking, I'm saying, well, really, we would want it. What? How much? cost would we want to impose on these people to save us now with all of the technology, all of the wealth that we have, $100? Would we want them to spend $50 or $20? And if you use the 1% discount rate that the that people are pushing, like Stern and, uh, and Stieglitz, um, $100 benefit today, okay, or cost that, that could be mitigated by something that they could have done in the beginning of the Civil War, um, if you use 1%, that takes it down to $20.76. That is, we should have wanted people in the, during the Civil War to spend $20.76 to save us $100 today. If instead of doing it through this climate where you only get 1% rate of return, they had put it in, the, uh, in, in a broad-based stock portfolio, it would have generated over $900,000 for us today. So there are two problems. One, <laughs> we're making poor people do things to help richer people, all right? Two, we're making them do it in a hugely inefficient way. So that's what I'm working on. Cool, we look <laughs> forward to that. And thank you. And and Mike, you had, uh, you've done quite a bit of public opinion research over the years. And a, one question that you ask frequently uh, in your surveys is willingness to pay to mitigate climate change. And what, what are some of the numbers that you've seen consistently? Yeah, we consistently get about 42%, 44% of the people who say zero, depending on how you ask the question, right? It doesn't, I mean, it's consistent, but it varies just a tiny bit of how you ask the question, fight climate change, address global warming, get rid of fossil fuels, whatever. Um, the means, the medians in the questions, the median responses are always between twenty-five and fifty bucks. Except the the most recent one, the mean was uh, the median was I think ten bucks, because um, of you know we're in the middle of a pandemic when I asked it. Um, and the med the the means right, the averages are always like you know a hundred and fifty bucks because we always get you know two percent of the population that says ten thousand bucks. You know, you can't stop a survey and say, "Do you actually have?" <laughs> right. <bucks?" laughs> so you just like, "Well, they do now." Right, yeah. Government's <laughs> giving them all kinds of money. You know, first time, first time I did the sur first time I did that survey, I'm like, "What the hell?" And I went and looked at the spread. I'm like, "Okay, I got it." You know, I, I should have probably put a tag in that on the question. Just said, 
Great. We're going to swing by your house in a couple of minutes and pick up the check. <laughs> but you, you know, I, I think the left works against themselves on this because they keep telling people it won't cost you anything. You know, it's going to it's going to make us richer. Yes. So that it's like, you know, you ask some people, they say, well, no, this is a con. I know I can get it for free. I, you know, don't don't ask me how much I'm going to spend. I know you, you will come by my house and ask for the check. So I'm not going to say that. Yeah. Meanwhile, the chatter on the chat on Twitter is is increasing with people uh, posting how much they how much they more they've paid for their gasoline since Biden was <laughs> was sworn in 50 days ago. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. David Kreutzer, everybody. Appreciate having you on and look forward to bringing you back. Uh, thanks a lot. Look forward to it myself. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Uh, bye. Bye. All right. That was Dr. Kreutzer from the Institute for Energy Research. So glad he's on board. The intellectual arm of the American Energy Alliance. Thank you so much. All right. Always great to have Dr. Kreutzer with us. Okay. So in the news this week. I'm going to do a quick rundown from PBS, and then we can chat about this. Joining us, the Senate approved a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill just after noon today, a party-line vote with one Republican not in attendance. The EAs are 50, the days are 49, the bill as amended is passed. After a marathon overnight session, all 50 Democrats in the Senate voted in favor and 49 Republicans voted against the bill. Now that we're in the majority, they don't seem to want to work with us. But we're going to get it done anyway. We, we prefer them to work with us. We want them to work with us. Maybe they'll change their minds after this. Coronavirus pandemic benefits in the Senate version of the bill include $1,400 payments for individuals making up to $75,000 a year and $2,800 for married couples making up to $150,000. Additional federal unemployment benefits were set at $300 per week and extended to September. Republicans objected to the spending plan, saying it is too large and that the country's economy is already recovering. Democrats backed the president's first major legislation and used a budget reconciliation process to avoid needing a 60-vote filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. The legislation now goes back to the House of Representatives, where Democrats hold a slim 10-vote majority for a second approval. Which was approved, and Joe Biden will be signing on Friday. Yeah, man. So. It's going to be a good bill signing. So, okay, what didn't the report mention in well, terms of what is in the quote-unquote yeah, COVID relief right. package? That was the first thing I was going to go to was that everyone keeps calling it the COVID relief package. I think the New York Times said COVID aid bill. I'm like, it, it was it was almost not at all involved with COVID aid or, or relief or anything like that. And Ro Canna called it, I think, the most transformative progressive legislation in the last 50 years or 60 years, something like that, right? So, um, and Ben Rhodes, right? America's favorite... Um, um, Be careful. America's favorite <laughs> um, examiner of the Iranian moderates, right? Uh, ben Rhodes said also something similar, right? Great piece of progressive legislation. That's what it was, right? Bailout to the states and localities, um, expansion of Obamacare, um, into the middle class, right, up to, um, you know, six times the poverty level. Um, and, you know, the more you the more you pay for your premiums, the more money you get from your fellow taxpayers. Don't um, forget federal workers get to. Right, federal workers get their of 21 weeks, something like that. Paid leave. Yeah. If the, anyone in their household is learning from home. Right. So for, for the rest of Americans who got their 
fourteen hundred bucks. These federal workers get well. Of course, the right answer bucks is a week. Well, I mean, the right answer there is you simply um, you get somebody in your family to sign up for some online courses and presto, um, you know, if you're a federal worker, if you're a federal worker. Um, the other thing that nobody ta- there are two other things nobody talks about. I thought were interesting. One is the extension of the unemployment, right? The three hundred bucks on through till the day after Labor Day. Um, that all in, you know, state state typically state unemployment insurance runs three um, three fifty. Um, so six hundred bucks, right? Six hundred bucks divided by forty is fifteen dollars. It's a backdoor minimum wage, is what it is, because employers to get those folks off the couch prior to September are now going to have to offer them more than fifteen dollars. So I expect the American labor market's going to be um, really. Um, tight and bad all at the same time for the next year and a half. And I don't think anybody's factored that in. And then the other thing, and I hate to take a victory lap, but I'm going to, even even with my um, even with my injured right leg, I'm going to take a lap. I told everybody, we told everybody, Joe Manchin is not ever going to vote against the Democrats. He's not ever going to be that guy on anything important. Um, he had multiple opportunities to derail this train, to shift it off in a different direction. He took none of them. And then um, the other thing, Chuck Schumer um, didn't completely tell the truth on his on that little. Oh, wait, there's a lot more that, that that's you know, going on there. You know, the, the Republicans, the Republicans when they went to the White House a couple, three weeks ago, specifically offered a bunch of things that would have dropped the dropped the um, price tag and sharpened the um, target of the, of the legislation. And the president took none of them. The Democrats took none of the, them. They had a, they had a show, they had a, a photo op. They never had any intention of doing any of that. Yeah. And when Chuck Schumer says, Oh, now that we're in the majority, they don't want to work with us as if the Democrats worked with the Republicans on anything over the last four years and expect us all just to like be like, yeah. oh, I guess he's right. I, I mean, I'm OK with Chuck Schumer being Chuck Schumer, right? He is what he is. He's a he's not a particularly nice person. He's from Brooklyn, so he's got some reasons. Um, if I was from Brooklyn, I wouldn't be a particularly nice person either. That that was a direct shout out to my good friend Maggie Haberman. Um, the tricky thing about this is, is that President Biden ran specifically as a new kind of Democrat. He was going to reach across the aisle. He was going to embrace bipartisanship, yada, yada, fill in the rest of it. You're going to see a bill signing on Friday afternoon that's going to include zero Republicans. It's going to include zero Republicans because the bill itself included zero input from Republicans. Um, it, it's, it's um, you know, Chuck Schumer's just being Chuck Schumer. Uh, Joe Biden lied to us. And that's the first time I can recall that he actually lied to us as president. So I wanted just to um, highlight it here. I'm going to keep track. Yeah. Well, um, Joe Biden also was touting this bill and uh, recently talked about the broad swath of economists who were on his, uh, uh, who were in favor of this. So let me uh, play a short clip. The vast majority of economists, left, right, and center, from Wall Street to the Private, uh, private uh, 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 economic uh, uh, polling initiatives. 
<laughs> where's that? Where's that from? Was it? Was this earlier? It was his his rallying speech. Rally? How much of a rallying speech? I don't know what the private. I'm assuming he was going with private equity. I think he was trying to search for the word equity <laughs> from Wall Street guy. Well, even that. Think, he went, think, he went, let me tell you. Well, here's where he ended up. Let me run that one again. Private, private uh, 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 economic uh, polling initiatives. Oh boy! You know the the thing is, if he had just if he had ended up where we think he wanted to go, he would have said econo economists across the spectrum, from Wall Street to private equity guys. I'm like, dude, those are the same guys. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> left, right, uh. center. I mean, and and the funny thing is, of course. To, and this is something that, that I'm assuming somebody in the administration understands, Janet Yellen, if nobody else, the Wall Street guys love this stuff. It's free money. Of course, the Dow went uh, through the roof. It's free money, so. you big dummies. Yeah. And downplaying the inflationary impacts uh, of all of this debt uh, that's been oh. swimming into the system. Between this bill, I think it's over five trillion now in six. relief. Six, six, six trillion six. dollars. I mean, the good news is, the good news is that a trillion hasn't been spent, and none of this two trillion's been spent yet. And the checks go out, and they're going to be like four hundred twenty billion, some number like that. Um, so it's a it's a long fuse. You know, the bad news is it's ultimately going to find its way in. Uh, oh, here's another little hitch too for for those who are uh, aren't paying attention. The child credits are going to be distributed throughout. Uh, I don't know what the um, payment structure is going to be, but if you have an electronic account with the IRS, you're going to get your child credit phased out, or I'm sorry, chunked out over the course of the year, as opposed to waiting until you file your taxes. So that to me is the precursor for uh, oh, yeah, what's yeah, his yeah, name's yeah, deal, yeah. your buddy Yang. Yeah, I was going to say they're they're you know the universal basic income right um, in there. You'll hear a lot about this in there. They're basically um, going to and I don't have a grasp on the specific numbers. I think it's seventy two hundred dollars for each child under the age of six, and then some chunk of money thirty five hundred bucks something like that for each child between um, six and eighteen. It's guaranteed income. It's also well, this is something we haven't talked about, right? It's also a vitiation of everything that we've learned about welfare in the last uh, 50 years, right? That um, 55 years, really, that if you don't have a work component, what winds up happening is you have zero workers in the house and you incentivize um, illegitimacy and you incentivize, um, you incentivize people not getting in the habit of working across generations. But you but you're being racist. I I don't care what color anybody is as far as this stuff goes. The bottom line is is that you know last bipartisan dig at welfare reform was Bill Clinton. Um you know this thing is wholly partisan, purely socialist, terrible idea and we are going to reap um the the really bitter fruit of this. At some point in the not too distant future, the good news is we're going to get a chance to vote on it again because um, it expires in a couple of years, along with the earned income tax credit. Right, it expires, which by the way is no longer an earned income tax credit; it's just a tax credit. Um, expires in a couple of years, just like the Obamacare thing, right? Um, unless they jam us on climate and infrastructure, possible. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. Let me let me segue to that because there's yeah. lots of theories about what this does for the 
climate and infrastructure package, which shouldn't yeah. even be, you know, considered in the same in the same words. But uh, everything is climate and these days. But um, there are a wide range of, of of predictions between. Oh, this actually strengthens bipartisan <laughs> bipartisan. <laughs> I want to meet the guy who's for the infrastructure. But I've seen it. I've seen it meet in that. one of these. Let me guess. Uh, e and E or something. I don't want to. I don't want to say who because I don't remember. This, where is, I this saw. is a reporter who doesn't get paid for a living and the, to do this uh, stuff. And the opposite, of course, which is this hardens the Republicans against anything. But I, I don't know where. I think where I fall down is is somewhere in the middle because honestly, like the Republicans, some Republicans anyway, aren't going to be able to help themselves um, if they see this thing moving along and they get a chance to get some gravy. Especially folks like Senator Murkowski who have shown already that she's willing to be Monty Hall with the Biden administration. Yeah, um, I'm okay with that. But it, no, it's not going to help. And I'll tell you, uh, Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin, and the rest of the Senate Democrat moderates, whatever you want, however you describe that, right? Um, they already made it clear they want some pay-fors in this thing. And that, 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 that pay-for, those set of pay-fors are going to come right out of the, um, the Trump tax cuts. Right, and it's going to be directed at attacking corporate tax rates and rich people, and a bunch of other things. And if we were going to have any hint of bipartisanship on the highway bill, and I'm going to start calling it the highway bill just to annoy people, I'm um, joining in that. It's always fun. Yeah, um, if we're going to have any hint of bipartisanship on the highway bill, raising taxes is going to kill that right away. Um, you can do a lot of things as a Republican and get away with it, and you know people still going to vote for you. Second, you raise taxes, you're a dead man. Um, so, Including carbon taxes, especially since that would violate Biden's own pledge. But since he just showed us that he's willing to lie to the American people. Yeah, and that's why I'm a little concerned about uh, That's why I'm a little we concerned talked a little about, bit about that. this last week, and I pulled the old George Bush line out, read my lips, no yeah. new taxes. Right, and, so. that's, and that's exactly where I go to, right, the bottom of that $400,000 number that Biden said, I'm not going to raise taxes on anybody making more than 400000 I think that's now probably not accurate, which is not to say that we're not going to try our best to hold him to it. And, you know, my hope is that Scranton Joe is, you know, it's like, reflects- it's like there's two, like there's, you know, those cartoons with the devil on one yeah. side of your shoulder and yeah. the angel on the, the, de- the angel is Scranton Joe. And the devil is like, you know, all these progressives, you know, tugging at Joe's what's left of Joe. You know, so. the terrible thing is, is that. I want Joe to be who he thinks he is in his own head. I don't know who he thinks he is but anymore. But I, I think he, he probably imagines himself to be a working-class Catholic from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I want him to be that guy, but just the weight of evidence is starting to crush that, my ability to carry that around with me. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he is a, um, he's a fully activated member of the Ron Klain fan club at this point, as best I can tell, um, which means we're live on carbon tax and which means um, this highway bill is going to be really messy and terrible. Speaking of carbon tax, a couple of quick uh, quick articles for you, E&E uh, News on um, Monday. Lindsey Graham eyes collaboration on climate change. Senator Lindsey Graham said he has spoken to White House climate envoy John Kerry about climate change and appeared to back carbon pricing in an interview with Axios. That aired last night. This must be their HBO deal. Quote, when you put a price on carbon, everything else works, Graham said when asked about carbon taxes. The way for me to get Republicans is to get business, and John Kerry gets this, Graham said. Graham has bad carbon pricing in the past, and he was part of a group with Kerry, and then 
Senator Joe Lieberman that attempted to negotiate a compromise bill in 2010. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it my? Should I... <laughs> yeah. You can say anything. I, I want to remind you, AEA's first issue advocacy campaign was ran in in Senator uh, directly at Senator Graham for his embracing of 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 climate of the at then cap and trade process. So it wasn't even yeah. a carbon tax so back the, then. So the intellectual bankruptcy of Senator Graham can be shown in just that one quote, right? The trick to getting Republicans is getting business. That may have been true 20 years ago, but as we've discussed now at the United States Chamber of Commerce a bunch of times, um, the the Republicans in Congress are much more are much more reactive towards their voters and especially the the, the Trump folks than any business could possibly be. And on top of that, there's not a single homegrown business who's going to be in favor of increased taxation of any kind, right? The only people who are going to be in favor of it are, are folks who think that they can game the system like API and the chamber, right? Your small businesses, they're not going to be in favor of any of this stuff. Your service stations, they're not going to be in favor of it. So, and then the other thing, and I don't mean to be unchristian or uncharitable, who in the world believes anything Lindsey Graham says? Well, I, it's funny too because you, you know he he seemed to glom on to President mm-hmm. Trump uh, when it was politically expedient for him to do so, and now he's sort of reverting back to his ways, if you will. So let me um, before we leave this, let me tell you a little. Let me give you a tidbit about um, Senator Graham that is not publicly known. He hasn't spoken to Senator McConnell in at least a year. McConnell will not take his phone calls. The end. One more quickly on this subject matter from Reuters. This was on March 9th. Senators float a price on methane to curb U.S. oil gas emissions. Three Democratic U.S. senators Tuesday floated a bill that would take a new approach to curbing emissions from methane from oil and gas production, putting a price on it. Can you guess who they are? Sheldon Whitehouse. Bing, ding, ding. Oh, boy. Ed Markey. Nope. No, not Ed Markey. Uh, Maisie Hirono, Senator. Na, na. The other one. The other one. I need to sit Brian Schatz. Oh, I forgot about him, yeah. And Cory Booker. I would have figured Cory Booker. The Methane's Emissions Reduction Act, which directs the T- T- Department of Treasury to assess a fee on the potent... Greenhouse gas beginning in 2023, a move they said could end those emissions, help achieve climate change targets, and improve air quality in communities near oil and gas facilities. Are are the leaky natural gas pipes in the Northeast subject to that as well? Well, I mean, he he's a senator for all of America, sir. You can't just say I, he cares about I, his, his I don't care. I New mean, Jersey residents. I think we should definitely tax methane, if that helps us do something, I'm not quite clear what, but the long story short is methane leakage is probably worse from legacy systems, legacy LDC systems than they are from the oil fields. Um, that's a that's a terrible thing to say, but it's probably true. There's only so much that they can eke out of oil and gas in the electricity sector, and they're coming really close to yeah, to eliminating the ability to go after those three in particular it's it's funny it's like as if the universe in the whole universe of things the only people that emit co2 are oil and gas producers and the coal industry yeah man it it it's 
what can I tell you? This is, you know, this is the beauty of the system. Even the people in Rhode Island get representation. Oh, that's New Jersey. I was thinking about oh, Sheldon thinking about Whitehouse. Sheldon. Speaking of Sheldon, he had his first hearing yesterday. Senator Whitehouse to you, buddy. Speaking of Senator Whitehouse, on he the, had his first on uh, the Supreme on, Court on the dark influence money? of dark money in this in the court system, and he, I'm sure, he will be making his I mean, way his is, rounds to us, free market. Uh, his three witnesses. His three witnesses very soon. And his three witnesses. Well, I know he had John. I know the Republicans had John Adler as a witness. Why? To talk about. The fact that it's actually not impacting Chief Justice John Roberts' decisions. It's, <laughs> so that you was know, the angle. I, that he I, I don't even. I don't understand why Republicans even go to these hearings. They should just boycott them flat out. The three witnesses that Senator Whitehouse had, where I was going, was all um, take dark money, just which is ironic and fun. And you know, Senator Whitehouse himself is tangled up in it as well. Yeah. So he's. Not a good person. No. Well, right. it does, it's not dark money. This is the thing. This is the thing about environmental justice, as Dr. Kreutzer I didn't didn't get to. And if you if you look at the Democrats' agenda, it's easy to just say, okay, who are the people that they claim they want to help, and then just strike that and reverse it, as they said in in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. None of the policies that they push forward actually do help these constituencies. And this crusade against dark money when the left is has not only uh, caught up but well exceeded any what would be called dark money yeah. that free market groups or conservative organizations uh, receive and happy to, are happy to receive. At the end of the day, people are fr should be free to give money to organizations that they believe in. That's, that should be, you know – a reasonably agreeable so, standard. So the good news is, you just picked up a cot right next to Dave in the uh, <laughs> in the camp. So enjoy. I look forward to it. I, I hope they do call me up. Uh, I have a few things I'd like to say. <laughs> I have a few things that get off my mind. <laughs> no, you're out of order. <laughs> All right, we want to switch gears very briefly and uh, give an update on the situation on Capitol Hill. Um, here is a Quick rundown from CBS Evening News. Tonight, the heavily armed troops now deployed to protect the U.S. Capitol are being asked to stand guard for two more months. CBS News' lawyer and Capitol Police are so concerned about ongoing terror threats, the department wants the National Guard to stay through at least May. Over 5,000 troops make up the current force. The new request would keep up to 2,000 troops on duty. Many Hill staffers stayed home, and the House slimmed its schedule, though House Speaker Nancy Pelosi denied that it was due to the threat. I don't think anybody should take any encouragement that because some troublemakers might show up, uh, that we changed our whole schedule. Okay, lots going on here, first of all. Uh, they still have the fence way high up. Yeah, man. Same foot job. They still have... The concertina. Yep. And... These National Guard troops that are running around the Capitol, I'm sure most people don't know this, but they are not carrying any ammunition whatsoever. Yeah. But this is a show. I think actually it's good that they're not carrying any ammunition because, you know, nothing nothing says security like a bunch of bored young adult males with nothing to do but see somebody, you know, find somebody to shoot. Yeah, the whole thing is it's it's this it's, is a this is 
it's becoming it's embarrassing it it's embarrassing. Look, it's embarrassing that the members tolerate this, right? Um, this is not a partisan thing anymore. This is a ridiculous thing. At some point, you know, somebody needs look, if I remember the house, I swear to God, I just make everybody I make them read the record every day. Hey, yeah. you read the record every day. We're just gonna keep tormenting I would, you, you know until this stuff I would, stops. I would continue to force votes on on Voice vote stuff that yeah. they do. Yeah, no, I just do. Uh, I would force a roll call exactly. every single time. I'd roll time. call it out, make the motion I would have adjourn. Press I would have press conferences in front of that thing every day. So would I. The public needs to see what is going yeah, on. so would I. And that's funny, right? And nobody, nobody, I think that's the thing about it. Nobody sees it, right? This is a high, this should be a high priority for Republicans. Well, because maybe. if people saw this. Yeah, man, I think they be. would not tolerate it. Right. They would yeah. not tolerate see, it. See, and I, you know, I think. Truthfully, if I was Fox, I'd th I'd think about putting up a desk somewhere. Like so, you know, you always have that in the background. Yeah, if they should cover Capitol Hill, they should cover. Right, like, it's like a like at a football game where they have the. Kevin McCarthy could do it. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy could just say, "I'll absolutely do that interview, but do me a favor, meet with meet meet with a mobile source guys. We're going to do everything in front of this fence now." That's right. It's just insane. It's ridiculous. It's bad. It's it's um. They're making members walk through magnetometers to get on the floor. This is all designed to create this sort of yeah. this emergency crisis legislating environment that these folks yeah. want yeah. for the next 50 days, 75 days to try and ram through the election bill. Uh, you had a hot, you had an update on the union bill. What was it? What's the, the, the <laughs> pro act? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hate to do this, but I just can't resist. United States Chamber of Commerce um, of the 15 Democrats who were reelected in the House who they um, endorsed, they endorsed 23, 15 and were reelected. All 15 voted for the PRO Act. All 15. Um, which and would, of pro course, act is... PRO Act is pro act's a, a bill which essentially empowers unions. But really what it does is vitiate um, right to work laws in 27 um, in 27 states that have them now, including a bunch of states that, that were, you know, Democrats voted for it. The fact that the chamber endorsed these guys tells you one of two things, right? It, it either tells you that um, these members value the chamber endorsement, not at all, possible, um, or chamber didn't do their homework on these guys and didn't ask about the PRO Act. Um, I'm betting that's the more likely answer. Ladies and gentlemen, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. If you are giving money to the United States Chamber of Commerce, please, please, please think about giving it to somebody who could maybe do some good with it. Perhaps a charity in your in your hometown, perhaps your 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 family, maybe a local school. Perhaps but a, you are wasting perhaps it. Perhaps the Institute for Energy Research perhaps or the, Institute, the American Energy Alliance, five oh one C three and five oh one C four. That would be an excellent answer as well. But you but but now you might as well just Get a plane and throw it out the window because you are seriously wasting your, your time and money. Sorry. That's the end of this commercial. All right. Uh, 49 days since President Biden issued the order to kill the Keystone Pipeline. Still no green jobs for those union workers who were laid off. Shut up, man. They're Just thought I would share that with everybody. I got a green job. Still no press conference. Job. Although I'm, I hear now that uh, they're ready. They're going to they're gonna get – he's going to get – uh, get ready to go prime time and address the nation. He has an address tonight. And then he'll have his first press conference 
by the end of the month. Here, here's what I'm worried about with this, right? This was this is a campaign hangover too, right? Um, everybody in the campaign, like, all we got to do is get him in a debate. And the truth of the matter is the president, President Trump now, lost the first debate because he would not shut up. Um, and the second debate was no better than a than – a, it was a push, right? It was even Stephen. If you set the bar low enough, anybody can step over. Well, he, Trump actually probably won the second debate because he let Biden talk more. Yeah. What I'm saying is, is that everyone anticipates that he's going to come across as um, mentally d- diminished. Um, no, he'll, he'll but but, he's but he, he'll a very he'll do fine tonight. Scripted speech. He'll and he'll do fine tonight. All the right conversation for a few. few and, days and then and then when he does do a press thing, I can tell you exactly what they're going to do on the press thing. Right, they're going to wait until they're somewhere where they have just a couple of poolers. Like he's he'll go he'll go to walk out. Hey, let's take a gaggle. Exactly. Come on, let's do exactly. a, let's do an impromptu deal. Right? Exactly. Yeah. He'll walk to the back of Air Force yeah. One and take you know. Take questions from two or three friendlies. Two in the morning on his way back exactly. from somewhere. Right. Exactly. Right. 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 Exactly. That's what I'd do if I was them. No show. No shows here uh, in, in the United States Congress. All right. Well, uh, that's a wrap on my end. Any any final parting words, Mr. McKenna? Uh, I just want to say that Senator Manchin, as predicted, saved the republic. No, wait a minute. Hold on. As yeah. predicted, he was Senator Joe Manchin. Senator Joe Manchin will never not give his leadership what they need. He'll make a show. He'll make a nice show of it, but he will not he will not yield to give them what they need. He's a good Democrat. To borrow from my friend Rex Ryan, I've walked over tougher guys than Senator Manchin to get to fights. <laughs> All right, let's just wrap it up with one more from President Biden, who is singing showering praises on his new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. So I want to thank you both, and I want to thank the, the uh, former general. I keep calling him general, but my, my, uh, the guy who runs that outfit over there. Uh, I want to make sure we thank the secretary for all he's done to try to implement what we just talked about and for recommending <laughs> these two women for promotion. <laughs> thank you all. May God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Oh, man. I, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he'll recall his name next time he does a press conference. I wonder where those troops, I wonder what organization those troops are in. (laughs) All right. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Kreutzer. Thank you, Mike. I know you're late for lunch. Tell Chet I said hello. Take care. Namaste. Namaste.